Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. you to take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Ephesians, the fifth chapter. We're going to be looking at that chapter together. Almost without fail, after I went and started my own home, when I would leave, my father would give the same salutation. He would say, take care, sonny boy. It was his way of saying, I love you. And it was an indication that he would be thinking of me in the time that elapsed between my departure and my return, always hoping for my return. This passage of Scripture is a call for us to take care. We're going to see take care of what. Let me go ahead and make note of this. Everything that's worth doing or worth having requires care. It's important to understand. So let's look at verse 15 of Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to look through verse 21, and these verses will serve as the basis for the morning message. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, the, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. The first thing we want to be warned to take care of would be our walk in understanding. Understanding is emphasized in this passage of Scripture, and the concept of a walk, that is a biblical term that's used in both testaments of our Bible to describe the journey that we walk in this world together as we walk through with Christ. So let's look at verses 15 through 17, which exhort us, encourage us to take care with understanding about this walk in this world. Verse 15 says, therefore, be careful how you walk. The word walk might be translated live, and some of your translations do translate it that way. Also, another way to look at it is behave. It's about our behavior. To this point in the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul has been very clear about what we're to do if we're followers of Christ. There would be no question in their minds and there's more to come, but they had more than a plate full of things that they were responsible for, and we, by connection to them, in a way, through this epistle, these things apply to us just as surely as they applied to the first people who heard it or read it. So these things are applicable to us. We're to take care when it comes to our behavior. He goes on to say, not as unwise men, but as wise men. We're fools if we ignore the instructions that are given to us in Scripture as to how we can be in sync with the Lord and His will for our lives. Verse 16 says, making the most of your time because the days are evil. The New International Version says, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. The picture that's painted and would have been clear in the minds of the hearers or readers of this the first time it was read and or read and, and or spoken to them would have been very clear because the image is that image of having an opportunity to get a bargain a real bargain that you could buy and then be able to flip it and make money out of it so we find ourselves today not looking to venture into some sort of business arrangement but nevertheless, we take heed to what we're told here, that we would be just as eager as shoppers 
for a bargain like at Black Friday. Have any of you been to Black Friday? I haven't, and I don't know that I'm going to. But I've heard there's some good deals, and people, I'm sure, go in there with a view toward getting something that's quality for a low price and then flipping it and making some money. We don't want any witnesses to that today, so we will go far farther into this consideration of taking care. But the idea is make every effort to keep the unity, not the unity, every effort to be careful to seize the opportunities that are ours. The word translated time is a word which means a moment in time that is orchestrated by God for us to really grow in our knowledge of him and help others in their pilgrimage too. It's a moment in time, as we would count time, that is when eternity breaks into that moment. And God gives us an opportunity to represent him. We need to take care to be on the lookout for those opportunities. I had one such opportunity last week, early in the week. I was running behind. I knew I had to get to work at the appointed time because I had called the meeting, but I wanted to squeeze my 30-minute walk in. And I calculated, I thought, I've got just enough time to do everything I need to do, walk, shower, get to work on time. And I had this sense when I got out of the car as I, a man passed by walking his dog. I had seen him more than one time and had spoken to him several times too. Nothing lingering in the conversation, just, hi, how are you, friendly exchange. And I sensed the Lord wanted me to reach out to him to see if I could pray for him and maybe a door would be open to share Christ with him. But I quickly shrugged it off. I said, you know, Lord, I need to get my walk in. And I forgot about the real walk we're on in this world, the one that's talked about here. So I said, okay, Lord. I didn't go begrudgingly, but I wasn't the most eager person either. So I came up to him. I said, how are you doing? And he was moving pretty fast, so I was having to keep up with him. And he said, may I pray for you? And he just looked at me, stunned kind of. Why is he asking me if I want him to pray for me? And I identified myself, I'm a pastor, and I'd just like to pray for you. He let me do it. I prayed for him, and he went his way. Now, I was hoping more that would have, would have come of that encounter than I actually did. I was hoping that there'd be a door to share Christ with him. Well, maybe there will be, because I know where he lives. He lives, <laughs> and I'll be going by there again. And maybe the Lord will open that door for me at that time. But nevertheless... I don't know if I missed an would have missed an opportunity, but sometimes when the heart is tugged on by the Lord, yours and mine, we need to act on it, no matter how foolish we might appear to the people that we're ministering to or how much we need to get on to the next thing in our lives. Making the most of every opportunity. Why? Because the days are evil. Now, what's interesting to note about this particular phrase and for a long time I have thought that means hey yeah we need to make the most of every opportunity like witnessing to people who are walking down the sidewalk or doing an act of kindness to somebody because we may never have that opportunity today uh, that we have today in the future so we need to know that the idea here does probably include that as a possible connection but also, it has something to say to us. We live in evil days. Would you agree? And Paul's day was evil. We don't have to go into a lot of detail. In fact, I'm not going into any. I'll just say, suffice it, that this day in which this letter was written was filled with evil. Not much different from ours. Very similar, actually, if you begin to compare the two cultures. But what this could and probably does include in the idea of seizing the evil day is this. We've seen it since COVID came to our doorstep about a year and a half ago. We've seen how people are hungry to know God. People who 
come off the street not looking for a handout, but looking for interpretation of what's going on. And people who are hungry for the Lord, they don't even know it many times, but they're eager for that which is missing in their lives to be filled with reality. This morning in our 9 o'clock worship service, it was as largely participated in as any service I can remember at 9 o'clock in the history of the church. There were as many people almost in that meeting, and it's usually about a half the size of this meeting, as had been in the past. I can interpret that to say God is giving us opportunity not to have more people. We love people. We don't love numbers. We love people. If there's one or a hundred, it doesn't really matter because everyone is significant. But my point, I think, is already made that we have an unprecedented opportunity, I believe, to represent Christ well and to let Jesus love other people through us. And it begins with our loving each other. It is the final apologetic for the Christian faith is how we treat each other. And we'll get to that in just a moment. Let's look at verse 17. So then, because we do live in a day of evil, so then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, I've already tipped my hand here by drawing attention to the fact that we are to behave in a certain way. The will of God is spelled out for us in the Scripture. This book is God's will, and God's Spirit wants us to read the Bible, find out what the will of God is, and do accordingly. So this particular passage of Scripture is not about the grasping of what the will is with the mind. Rather, it is knowing what God wants us to do and then doing it, taking it a step beyond intellectual conception to actually applying it in our lives. Know what the will of the Lord is. So let's back up to verse 1 of this chapter for a moment, and we're going to look at two places rather quickly that will help us to understand what this would look like, our doing the will of God, having known what it is, now doing it. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. Here's that word again, walk. In other words, live in love. Let love be the atmosphere that determines your life and the life of the church that you are a part of. Then if you'll look at verse 8 of chapter 5, For you were formerly darkness, and now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. We are to walk in such a way that men shall see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. We let our light shine is what Jesus says. We are the salt of the earth. We are given the responsibility as members of the human race and more importantly, members of the family and kingdom of God that we represent him well. He lives in us and he himself is the light of the world. We have no inherent light in our lives. However, because of his presence in our lives, there should be a shining coming through our lives and people will be ministered to by our very presence. People will want to know according to 1 Peter chapter 3, about the hope that is within us. And we will be given opportunity to share with them why we are hopeful in dark times. It is because of who Christ is and what Jesus has done for us and what he wants to do for them. Look at verse 9. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. The bottom line of what God wants us to do as far as his will is concerned is to please him. If we were to go to the book of Hebrews, what we would read in the 11th chapter in the 6th verse is that without faith it is impossible to please God. We are here on earth in order that we might bring glory to God by pleasing the Lord, doing his will, if you please, and so this is who we are. This is what God has called us to do, 
to walk in understanding, to walk in wisdom, not be foolish men. The Bible says in the book of Psalm 14, in the heart of the fool there is no God. Well, foolishness in that context in Psalm 14 doesn't have to do with intellectual lacking, intellectual deficiency. It has rather to do with moral foolishness. This world in which Paul lived and these Ephesian believers did was one that was sorely lacking in moral wisdom. And so is ours. And we have been given this responsibility and privilege, I might add, to do the will of God so that people will be drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ and he will be glorified as a result of that. So we are to aim and take care to walk in understanding. But also, and this is where we'll spend most of our time today, is that we are to have as our goal in pleasing the Lord to walk by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Bible talks about, Paul talks about, other writers in the scripture talk about the flesh of mankind. And when the Bible speaks of the concept of flesh, it's not really in most cases talking about that which covers our skeletal system and our muscular. It's not talking about that part, that flesh. Rather, it's talking about my personality apart from the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit. Flesh is my selfishness and your selfishness. It's living for ourselves without regard for anybody else. It begins with God. We ignore God unless there's a crisis. And when the crisis is over and he has delivered us from the crisis, then we put him back on the shelf where we'd had him prior to that crisis arising. And we ignore people. Listen to what the word of God says about us who know Christ. Listen, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Each of you should look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's just a small part of what could be cited at this point. But you understand, we're not here for ourselves, but when we walk by the flesh in dependence upon ourselves, that's the kind of life we live. And if we allegedly know Christ, and if we paint that kind of picture for people in the church and outside the church, we fail miserably. It's not God's will for our life that we live that kind of life. We're to walk by the Spirit. Galatians 5, 7, 16 says that. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Paul talks in the book of Romans about a battle that waged royally, internally in his life. And he talked about how the things he wanted to do, he couldn't do, and the things he didn't want to do, he ended up doing. He was a mess sometimes, just like we are. But he gives the solution to that in this passage of Scripture. So please listen. The solution is to walk by the power of the Spirit. He describes it as being filled with the Spirit. I'm talking about Paul does and the Spirit of God does. So let's take a leap into verses 18 through 21. Look at it. And do not get drunk with wine. Literally, this is the best translation that could be given that I'm about to give you, not because it's coming from me, but through the studies that I've done. Stop getting drunk with wine. There were people who were followers of Christ. Remember, this was addressed to people who were called saints who were getting drunk. We don't know the circumstances of it. We do not know that Dionysius, who was the god of wine and other associated things, had a presence in a, the city of Ephesus. We know Ephesus was a large city. It was no small city next to Rome and Athens. Some would say it was the most important city in the Greco-Roman world. So there were a lot of people, and people came out of that kind of pagan background, which was connected to the worship of Dionysius, the god of wine. Some of them perhaps had developed alcoholism as a result. But suffice it to say, they were getting drunk with wine, for this is dissipation. 
The word dissipation, I don't think I use that word much ever except when I'm teaching from this passage of Scripture. Some of the translations say debauchery, and I know I don't use that one except when I'm talking about this passage of Scripture, or one other passage, by the way. The other passage is about the prodigal son. You remember the story, don't you? He was the younger of two sons. He insisted that his father give him his share of the estate, which was one-third. First son got two-thirds. Second son, one-third, and the other people were lost as far as inheritance. So he takes the money. What does he do? He takes it and he runs. He runs as far away as he can as if to say, I'm going to show you, Daddy. I've lived under your thumb long enough. And then in a matter of a short period, he squanders all his resources on riotous living is the way that some of the translations translate it. The word riotous living, it's two words in English, but it's capsulized in the one word that Jesus used in telling the parable. And what it means, no limits, hog wild, having a party hearty, doing whatever you want to do without reference to any kind of ethical, ethical constrictions or restrictions. And we know what happened to the young man. Before long, all the people who were his best buds had moved on to another fool who was squandering his father's resources. And he was in a, a pig pen, and he was feeding pigs just some kind of grain, and all he had were the husks to eat. So he goes home. The scripture talks about how he lived that out, and he wasted his life, at least that aspect, because he lived that kind of life. Being drunk with wine is that kind of life. Drunk with anything is that kind of life. It's a waste. We even use the term, he was wasted. Or some of you, and I can relate to this, have said, I was wasted. Have any of you got that kind of testimony? Well, you know what it's like. A great medical man and also a man who became an outstanding pastor. He was talking about this passage, and this is what he said. Martin Lloyd-Jones was the man's name. He's a Welshman, lived in the 20th century, died in 1980. Great preacher of the gospel in Great Britain and other parts of the world. He said, when I was in medical school, I had a pharmacology book, and the pharmacology book talked about, among other things, things which were stimulants and things which were de depressants that could be taken medically, prescription kind of meds. He said, if I were to go to that part that is a depressant, I would find the word alcohol among the depressants. Alcohol gives us an initial kind of lift when we drink it. But if we drink too much of it, we get drunk. We don't remember anything about what happened during that period of drunkenness. But it really acts on that part of our brain that is that which distinguishes us from animals, and we begin to act like animals, not people created in the image of God. So you see why the Lord would use this study in contrast. Instead of being controlled by wine, living under the influence of wine, what are we to do? We're to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now think about the contrast there. Among the aspects of the fruit of the Holy Spirit in the book of Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23, Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And at the end of the list was the word self-control. Actually, when we are filled with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit enables us to become more like God, not less like God. Less like man and more like God as we are filled with the Holy Spirit. I want to take the rest of the time to talk about this simple statement that is so packed with potential for us individually and as a church. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is a way it could be translated accurately and maybe a way that we can understand it for us. Y'all keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. Y'all keep on being 
controlled by the Holy Spirit. The idea of filling usually is associated with a container that's empty and filling it up. And that is a legitimate way of looking at it. However, there are many usages, I believe this is one, where in the New Testament the word that is translated filled has to be translated or interpreted at least by being controlled by. For instance, in Luke chapter 5, verse 26, a group of people had witnessed Jesus healing a man who was a paraplegic. He couldn't even get himself to the place of an audience with Jesus. He had to be brought by his friends. He was paralyzed from the neck down, evidently. We don't know why, but he was paralyzed nonetheless, and he was healed by Jesus. And the Bible says the people praised God and they were controlled by or filled with awe. Fear is the actual word. The fear of God came upon them. And they praised the Lord. They were controlled by their awe of God. When Jesus was getting ready to leave his men, his apostles, in the upper room, he makes a statement to them about his leaving. And their response in John 16, 6 is, that they were gripped with grief. They were filled with grief. They were controlled by grief. Some of you had grief hit your life with that same outcome in your life. So y'all, it's plural, keep on being filled, which is the proper interpretation of this. So there's never a moment in my life after I come to know Christ that Christ's best for me, and more importantly, his best for himself, is that I be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's not because I'm a pastor. It's because I'm a son of God, a child of God. And he wants that for all of us. This is the normal Christian life. What we see very often in ourselves and elsewhere is abnormality. Normal Christian living is that which is animated by the Holy Spirit of God. That which is motivated by the presence of the Spirit of God in our lives. I can say without any doubt that I know God's will for your life in this matter. He wants you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He wants you to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Y'all, there's no special deluxe edition of Christianity. It's all. He all, wants this for all of us. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, no one can say Jesus is Lord apart from the Holy Spirit. In the book of Romans chapter 10, the Bible says, if we confess with our mouths Jesus as Lord and believe in our heart that he's been raised from the dead, we shall be saved. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, the Bible says, set apart Christ as Lord in your heart. Do you see the connection between being filled with the Spirit and being under the rulership of Christ as Lord? We can't even be saved apart from crowning Christ King in our lives. That's why when the Philippian jailer came out of his place of rest, he was awakened by this great earthquake, and the last thing he could remember was hearing Paul and Silas singing in the dungeon and he saw the entryway, the gate had been broken, and he was ready to kill himself. And all of a sudden, he heard this voice out from within that dungeon. Wait, wait, don't kill yourself, we're here. So out emerges the apostle Paul and his companion Silas, and this jailer says, what must I do to be saved? Now one wonders, how did he know to ask that question? Here, I believe, is the answer. The Bible talks about that passage in Acts 16 about how these men were singing, and they weren't just singing any kind of popular song. They were singing praise to God. And undoubtedly, they were singing about the gospel. And the gospel was heard by this man. And then what was the answer that Paul and Silas gave to him? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. Notice the order. Lord, that's ruler, master, Jesus, that Savior, Christ, that is King or Messiah. Look at the order. The Holy Spirit makes no mistakes in the Scripture. There's a seamlessness and a consistency about the Lordship of Christ. 
and also being filled with the Spirit. There's only one time you're baptized in the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 talks about that. I would like to read it for you just a moment. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. This is what the scripture says. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. We came to Christ, and it was the Holy Spirit's work of putting us in the body of Christ. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and it's not talking about water baptism. It's talking about the baptism of our being immersed, as it were, permanently in the body of Christ. This is a statement of fact, no command. We are commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm not splitting hairs here, nor is the Holy Spirit in giving this information to us. The idea is that we come to Christ. When we come to Jesus, we make Jesus Lord. And in effect, that's by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does come and He indwells us. He baptizes us into the body. And we are filled with the Spirit, believe it or not, when we give our lives to Christ. When you really come to know Jesus, that's what happens. But then, if we're not taught the imperative nature of what we're being considering, what we are considering today, that the fullness of the Spirit is lost whenever I sin, and we fail miserably as a church and as the modern American church to help people understand how to walk with the Lord going forward. Because it's a big change in one's life to teach people how to deal with sin, to confess it and receive cleansing when you do confess it to the Lord. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to purify us from all unrighteousness. That's what God wants us to do. He's given us an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one who has paid the price for our sin in terms of its punishment and penalty in the long run. But meanwhile, when we sin, we need to confess it to the Lord. And we need to put it out there and we need to humbly come before Him and accept that cleansing. That's what happens. So there is one baptism of the Spirit, many fillings. We also lose the fullness of the Spirit, not just when we sin, but also we lose the fullness of the Holy Spirit when we are poured out in ministry to people. When you are giving yourself to be used by the Lord. And we see Jesus frequently after hard days of ministry. He would draw aside early in the morning before his apostles would awaken and he would go to a solitary place and he had communion with the Father. And the Lord restored the fullness of the Spirit in Jesus' life in a sense. He never was one who sinned, we know that, but he needed to get filled up again so he could do what was necessary in the following day, be filled with the Spirit. I read about a woodpecker, and uh, I don't know if this can be a verifiable story, but it was about a woodpecker who was a novice woodpecker. He had been trained well by an expert woodpecker and he was sent on his first assignment. The day he went out, it was rather rainy, and he went, and the very instant that his beak, first time, went into the tree to peck the insect out of there, all of a sudden, a lightning bolt struck and split it completely in half. And after he kind of got himself together, cleared his head, and he said, I didn't know I had it in me. <laughs> he didn't know he had that kind of power. Well, he didn't. The power came from somewhere else, didn't it? Well, you wonder, I'm sure from time to time, how can I live a life that is consistently committed to Christ and honors Christ? Here's how you do it. It's really not you're doing it. You're in cooperation with the Holy Spirit himself. Jesus, when he went to the Feast of Booths, for a time of being with the people of God in Jerusalem. He had a chance to talk to them, and he makes this statement, 
he st stood up and he spoke loudly. Normally Jesus spoke in just a conversational way, but occasionally when he really wanted to get the attention of people, he would speak loudly and he would stand up, not sit down. And he says, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. And then John goes on to interpret what he was talking about. He was talking about how the Spirit of God would come into the person who was thirsty and came to Christ and drank of Christ. And this reservoir would fill up his life. There's a vacuum in all of our lives. It's what Blaise Pascal called a God-shaped vacuum that only God can fill. And when Christ comes to live in your life by the Spirit, then you're filled up, but you're not filled up for your own good. It's a part of it. Thank God he saves us, doesn't he? And he gives us fullness of joy and peace and all those wonderful things. But Jesus had had an encounter earlier than the one that I just mentioned in Jerusalem with a woman at the well of Samaria. And they had a conversation, theological in nature, and really it was spiritual in nature. And Jesus said, I've got some water to drink that you don't know anything about. All you have to do is drink it, and you'll never be thirsty again. And she was tired of going from the village out to the watering hole to get water. She went at noontime, which was the hottest part of the day. That's obvious. And the reason she did is because she was a woman of ill repute in the village, and people would have nothing to do with her. And she comes there, and she enters into this conversation. And Jesus answered her question about the water that he could give. Listen to what he says in John 4, 13. Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again. He was talking to the water in Jacob's well, natural water. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give shall never thirst. Isn't that a great promise? If we come to Christ and yield ourselves to him. But the water that I shall give him shall become in him or her a well of water springing up to eternal life. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that when we receive him into our lives, his spirit comes to indwell us. Whoever does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ, Romans 8 9 says. And the spirit comes, and he's not there just for us. He's there for others. And this river of living water comes out of us and spills out into other people. Let's recall what Jesus said about why the Holy Spirit would be sent. In Acts 1.8, he says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the remotest part of the earth. So we are empowered by the Spirit of God. I know what some people are thinking here. You're probably thinking, I can't do those things. I can't be that kind of Christian. Well, you're in good company if you think that way. Moses, who lived and prophesied of Jesus over a thousand years before Jesus ever came to earth, you remember when he was being told by the Lord that the Lord had a special assignment for him, and what did he say? I'm ready to go, Lord. That's what he said, right? He gave excuse after excuse after excuse, saying, I'm not your man. There are better people to fulfill this mission than I. And there's no sense in getting in an argument with God when God makes his mind up. He went. And later, he is wearing himself out. And the Lord speaks to him through his father-in-law. Tells him, you've got to get some help. And the Bible says that the Lord spoke, and this is in Numbers 11, 17. The Lord spoke to this man, Moses, and he said, the same spirit that came upon you, that I gave you, I'm going to take some of that spirit and put it upon 70 other men, and they will help share the load. The reason I even share that is because he was a man full of the Spirit of God. He balked, didn't he? He did not want to do what the Lord told him to do. He didn't think he was capable of doing it. But he finally yielded to the Lord. He was not perfect after he yielded to the Lord. He made a lot of errors along the way. But he always came back to the Lord, to that same beginning point of full surrender to the Lord. 
Somebody who say, I can't do it. I don't know how to do it. I'm scared. This passage which we read from Isaiah earlier, chapter 11, is a beautiful, just one verse, the second verse of chapter 11. It's a beautiful depiction of the Spirit of God coming upon the Messiah, coming upon Jesus. Look at what it says. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. It, the Spirit of the Lord rested on Jesus. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. We need wisdom, do we not? How can I do it, Lord? I will do it if I just know how to do it. What is the promise? The Spirit of God comes to indwell you when you yield to him, and he will give you what you need in the moment that you need it. In the book of Matthew, chapter 10, Jesus talking to his apostles, they probably had not even been following him two years when he told them this. They had had quite a bit of time with him and sat under his teaching. But remember what he said, don't worry when you're dragged before people of authority. Don't worry what to say. Because in that moment, the spirit of your father will give you what to say. Now back up with me just a moment. Where is the will of God found for us? In the Bible, isn't it? Who wrote the Bible? Humanly, there were men and women who were given the message and they faithfully wrote down what the Spirit of God led them to say. And thank God they did because we have a Bible that is God's message to us. And what we need to understand is that the wisdom is in the Word of God. And God's Spirit, who wrote it, also explains it to us, and He gives what we need in the moment. Many of you know what that means, what it looks like. There have been many times when I've been in situations when I thought, I don't know what to say, Lord, and, and the Lord didn't say out loud, but I remembered these verses, and He spoke to my heart and said, don't worry, I'll give you what you need in the moment. The scripture goes on to say this spirit is not only the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength. This could be a little misleading were it not for another passage in the 35th chapter of Isaiah where these two words are coupled together and it gives clarification as to what this spirit of counsel and strength is. It's about strategy and military power is the way it's used in 35.6. So this is talking about warfare. When we come to know Christ, we enter into a war zone. And later in the book of Ephesians, the scripture says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God. And then he enumerates what those pieces of armor are. And you will conquer the enemy. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, is what the word of God says. Very important. And then the last thing is the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The word knowledge has to do with intimacy with God and worship that follows it, the fear of the Lord, worshiping the Lord. So when it comes to our wisdom that we lack, or it comes to our able to wage war against a, an enemy that's a formidable foe, or it comes to our worshiping the Lord, which is the natural outcome of victory by the Spirit of God, all of that is supplied by the Holy Spirit of God when he's living in our lives and we're giving him control of our lives. Here are the marks. Go back to Ephesians 5. This is really important. We're not left to wonder what a spirit-filled Christian and a spirit-filled church looks like. First of all, in verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, we speak to each other. We encourage each other when we sing do you get encouragement being here just to sing to the Lord? And the choice of songs and the music, it helps us to worship the Lord. And we hear each other's voices, and we're encouraged when we're here. The word psalms is what you would think. It's one of the psalms from what we call the Old Testament. The word hymn would be hymns that were composed in the New Testament era. There's part of one here in verse 14. Look at it. Awake, sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Can't you hear newfound believers, the first generation of believers in Ephesus, singing this song? A chorus, maybe. Maybe this was all there was to it, but they sang it gladly to the Lord. There are others that could be alluded to, but time will not allow that today. You do your own search and find out what the Scripture says. 
So what is the first mark? Speaking to one another. And this would not just be in the context of worship. It would be we talk to each other. We speak to each other. We don't ignore people that we're out of sorts with. That is not a spirit-filled approach. You can't be filled with the spirit and be snotty in your spirit towards somebody else. I can't do it. You can't do it. We've all done it. But it's unacceptable for a spirit-filled person. Look at the next thing. Singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. J.B. Phillips translates it this way, singing and making melody for the ears of the Lord. Somebody say, Pastor, I'm not going to sing in public because I can't sing well at all. Well, remember, who is our audience? Christ is our audience. Don't you know he knows that you can't sing? But he loves to hear it coming out of our heart, doesn't it? Where we worship him from our heart. We're to be that kind. And this is also true of a spirit-filled believer. I tell you, I love getting in my car. God gave me a car back the first of the year. And my other car, the radio didn't work, or I didn't know how to work it. I can't tell you which was true. But I got kind of lonely in that car driving around. I do quite a bit of driving around. And I was so happy. I think the thing I liked best about the car, it had a radio. And I could work it. Those two things are both important. But I sing. I love to turn on to the radio and sing the songs of praise to the Lord, making melody in my heart and with my mouth, I might add, to Christ. Here, look at number three. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God even the Father. This is a tough one. There are three devices that this man, Paul, uses under inspiration of the Spirit of God. Always an adverb that says what it means and means what it says. Giving thanks, this is a participle, it's a verbal, and what it is, it's a present tense, so it could be always keep on give, keeping on giving thanks and then a prepositional phrase to round it off for all things. He leaves nothing to the imagination, does he? How in the world can I do this? I have problems in my life that you don't want even to hear about. But you have problems in your life that you want the Lord to hear about. We will probably leave this world, some of us, wondering why. And we have asked reverently to the Lord, why haven't you fixed this, Lord? Or why did you let it happen to begin with? But what we do know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose, even those things that are negative. We do know our God is a sovereign God. And he is capable of turning a very bad situation around into something good. Listen to what Paul said to the Corinthians. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. Does that sound desperate, the sentence of death? But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. God's power works best in a graveyard. And you may think you're dead in the water in some area of your life. Think again. A man or a woman who understands the work of God and yields himself and herself will find the wherewithal to go forward and find joy and a spirit of gratitude even in the face of difficulty. That's a powerful testimony, I might add. Look at the last thing. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Submit yourselves to one another in reverence for Christ is the way the NIV translates it. And this idea is one that is tough too. Remember what Jesus said if you want to be first in my kingdom, be the slave of all. Not servant, slave. He carefully chose his term. If you want to be first, be the slave. Don't be like the Gentiles whose rulers lorded over everyone under them, think that they were made to suit their will. Be like me. Even though I am the Son of Man, I did not come to be served but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. This is God's will for our lives, that we submit to one another. It doesn't matter 
who you are. I'm to submit to you. You're to submit to me. We are to be like this. This is mind-blowing to the world. Do you think the world needs a demonstration of a spirit-filled church? It does. And we have the capacity to do it if we yield to the Lord. That's the bottom line. Let me just close with this. How do you get filled with the Spirit? You probably already figured it out by now. First of all, you have to admit you're not. That's a tough one sometimes. Secondly, we have to surrender to the Lord. Unconditional surrender. Not, Lord, I'll give you this much. I'll give you 95%, but not all. I want to hold this little pet sin close to my heart. It's all or nothing. What he says is admit that you're not filled, controlled by, and then surrender, and then ask in faith. This is very interesting. The book of Galatians is right before Ephesians, so take a quick look with me at the third chapter, verse 14. It says, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit, Holy Spirit, through faith. How do we receive the fullness of the Spirit? By faith. It's an act of the will. It's believing based on the promise of God's Word. It doesn't come with feeling sometimes. But it's your saying, Holy Spirit, please take control of me. These four marks of a spirit-filled Christian and a spirit-filled church have nothing to do with experience, everything to do with ethics. It's how we treat each other. Experiences come and go, and many are valid. I'm not talking about that. But in the final analysis is how we live it out, speaking to one another, making music in our heart to the Lord, being people who care about each other to the extent of submitting ourselves fully to one another and so forth and so on. Would you pray with me? If you sense that you want the Lord to be your controller, you want to live under the Holy Spirit's influence, not the influence of your own flesh or the world, just say that to the Lord, would you, in your heart? Lord, I want you to fill me. I want you to control me. I'm not full of you, Lord, and I'm sorry, but I want to be. And I confess my independent spirit, and I want to let you be the ruler of my life. Give me the power to do it, Lord. I can't do it, but I want to trust you to do it. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen.